So, growing up, um, I when I was a little boy, I, I really enjoyed Sundays. And the reason I enjoyed Sundays um, had nothing to do with church or spiritual reasons. Uh, I, loved, I loved Sundays because of the Sunday paper. Um, so back in, in olden times, people used to subscribe to newspapers and they come and deliver them to your house. Oh, well, Sunday newspapers were special. And uh, they weren't special because I, I was really interested in current events of the world. They were special because they had inside of them the Sunday comics. And so the Sunday comics were, were special because they were color and they were like two full pages. And you could just sit and, and flip through them and read all the different comics. And one of my, one of my favorite comics uh, growing up was written by a man named Gary Larson. Does anybody know... Uh, Anybody know what Gary Larson wrote? Far side. That's right. I've got a I've got a picture here. Um, this is a uh, this is a one of his cartoons. Um, so what you've got is a, a man who uh, essentially represents someone who's in heaven, and uh, he somehow turned into an angel. We've got poor theology already, but he's uh, he's just kind of hanging out on a cloud, and he's thinking, "I wish I had brought a magazine." And uh, what, what you see is a picture of someone who's essentially bored. Like, I wish I'd brought a magazine. I'm just hanging out on this cloud with my wings and my halo and nobody really around me. I'm by myself. I wish I'd brought a magazine. And I think if we're honest, at, at some point, most of us have probably at least had hints of this feeling when it comes to what heaven's going to be like. Because we don't really know what it's going to be like. And, we're, and when you think of something and trying to do something for eternity, in our own small minds, that's really difficult to fathom that we wouldn't at some point in the course of eternity find ourselves like, like this guy, sitting on a cloud saying, I wish I'd brought a magazine. And so we're going we're gonna to look at a piece of scripture today that I hope encourages our hearts so that heaven is something we can look forward to as something that God's promised us and something that he's going to fulfill and not something that, uh, that we have an attitude of, yeah, it, it might be great, but I'm a little, I'm a little nervous that it's just going to be boring. So rather than viewing heaven as just this, this nice extra that's thrown in at the end of living a good life, the passage that we look at today shows that believers long for heaven. It ended with verse 16 saying that they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. So the, the big idea for this morning, the big idea we're looking at is this, faith transforms our today by changing our tomorrow. Faith transforms our today by changing our tomorrow. And there's a danger with this passage because Hebrews chapter 11 is one of those passages that shows up all over the place, right? Like you had it on like a magnet somewhere or it was on like a youth camp t-shirt. Like Hebrews chapter 11, um, everybody's familiar with it. And so this morning as we dive in to look at this passage, I don't want us just to sit back and say, I've heard this passage taught before, or I've read this passage before. Ask the Spirit of God this morning to speak to your heart, to, to, to reveal something new. And prayerfully, he will. So this morning, we're going to dive into this passage. We're going to try to answer three questions. Those three questions are really simple. What is faith? 
When we talk about faith, what do we even mean? What does faith do? <clears throat> and thirdly, what does faith mean for me? If we can answer those first two questions, what is faith, what does it do? And then that last question is more applicational. What does it mean for me? What does it mean for me if these things are true? If the Word of God is true, what does that mean for how I live my life? So let's jump into the first question, what is faith? And verse 1 of this passage really jumps straight into helping us answer that question, doesn't it? Faith is. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Assurance of things hoped for, conviction of things not seen. So this essentially describes the environment that faith exists in. The environment that faith exists and works. Faith takes place when things are hoped for, but they're not yet possessed. Or when things are promised, but they're not yet realized. And that's when faith steps in. Both of them essentially conveying the same idea. And that idea is this, that faith is being assured and convinced of things being promised and not received. So that in this respect, faith really deals with the future. Right? So when we're promised something and we haven't received it yet, we're really talking about something that's going to happen in the future confidence that those things that are not present but are promised in the Word of God. Having confidence in the things that are not present but are promised in the Word of God. And so the passage goes through and famously lists several chronological examples of people throughout Scripture starting with creation. So the universe was created by the Word of God and we have faith in that, that that is true, that it was created by God's Word. Noah believed that there would be a flood with no other evidence except for God's word speaking to him, telling him that was going to be true. Can you imagine that the faith that that took for Noah to, to go and start building just this gigantic boat in the middle of the desert? Who does that? Noah had faith in God's word that what he said would happen. Abraham dwelling as a pilgrim for years on end, holding tight to the promise that God made him, the promise that one day he would have a land of his own, that his descendants would outnumber the sand on the seashore or the stars in the sky. And Moses, <clears throat> Moses, who was run out of, uh, of his adopted home country of Egypt and then asked to return, and asked to not only return to his, to his home country, but asked to go before the king, the pharaoh, and say, let my people go. All of these things these people did because God's word spoke to them. And their faith existed not in their ability to do those things. In most of those cases, they, they doubted. Moses didn't want to go. He said, God, surely, surely there's somebody else but he had faith in God's word that he was calling him to go. And so this is essentially how we can distinguish biblical faith from just a generic idea of faith. Because that word is thrown around a lot, right? Like you just need to have faith in yourself that, you know, you can get this job done. Or you just need to have faith in yourself that you can accomplish these things that you set out to accomplish. There's just this, this gen general idea of faith that kind of floats out in the world. And it's normally seen as a, as a positive thing, but, but it's really empty, right? We just need to have, we just need to have faith. 
faith, faith in what? So that's, that's the difference here when, when Scripture talks about faith. We're not just talking about uh, just jumping in with, with two feet and, and going in you know, blind. The faith, faith that we're talking about is faith in God's Word, that God's Word is going to do what He says He's going to do, that He is who He says He is. This is not blind faith. This is the God who made all things. And what Hebrews 1.3 tells us, He sustains all of creation by His Word. It's that Word that we have faith in. And so our faith, therefore, feeds upon God's Word. Our faith feeds upon God's Word. The way Jesus described when He was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, Matthew 4.4 4, Jesus said, man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And Psalm 119 verse 105 says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. We are not wandering in the dark with just this blind hope and faith that something good is going to happen to us. We hold tight through faith to the promises of God's word, that the promises we see in his word, though they are not present realities for us, they will be future realities. That God's word is true. And also faith, as we're defining it, faith is a gift. Faith is a gift. And in my house, we've been reading uh, through... Uh, this just daily devotional. It's called New Morning Mercies by Paul Tripp. Uh, if, you're, if you're looking for just a daily devotional, uh, something that you can just flip and read and just has a, just a quick reading and a passage of scripture at the bottom to reference for each day of the year. Uh, if you're looking for something like that, if you think that could be beneficial with your walk, uh, highly, recommend, uh, highly recommend this book, New Morning Mercies. Um, on February 12th, um, this, I just want to read an excerpt because this, this was all about faith. And so uh, allow me, if you will, just to, to read. Uh, February 12th says, Faith isn't natural for us, for us. Doubt is, fear is, and pride is. But faith in the words and works of another isn't. And for that, there's grace. God hasn't just forgiven you. Praise Him that He has. But He has also called you to a brand new way of living. He has called you to live by faith. Now here's the rub. Faith is not normal for us. <clears throat> Faith is frankly a counterintuitive way for us to live. Doubt is quite natural for us. Wondering what God is doing is natural. It's normal to think your life is harder than that of others. Envying the life of someone else is natural. Wishing life were easier and that you had more control is natural. It's typical for you and me to try to figure out the future. Worry is natural. Fear is natural. Wanting to give up is natural. It's natural to wonder if all of your good habits make a difference in the end. It's normal to be occasionally haunted by the question of whether what you have staked your life on is really true. But faith isn't natural. That means that faith isn't something you can work up inside yourself. Faith comes to you as God's gift of grace. Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. So faith, we see... Through that passage in Ephesians, faith is a gift. It's not something we can just muster up. So what, what, when we look at this passage this morning, this isn't just a, a self-help sermon where we talk about faith and we, you know, we just say you need to have more of it. You need to figure that out. How can you get more faith? We can't muster up faith inside of ourselves. Faith is a gift. And it's a free gift given by God. 
And so faith, looking forward to the fulfilling of God's promises that are not here today. So what does faith do? If that's a, a, a nutshell, just definition of what faith is, what does faith do? What faith does? It makes real to us things that are otherwise unreal to our experience. So it presents things to our heart that we can't see with our eyes. It makes things real to us. We often uh, think of this chapter as focusing on the heroes of the faith, right? You go through that long list of all these people who did these amazing things. And we have a, a tendency, if we're not careful, to start to focus on the individuals. Man, look what Moses did. Look what Abraham did. Look what all these, look what all these, these biblically famous people did. Weren't they great? Weren't, weren't they wonderful? But really... Hebrews does draw upon just the, the wonderful histories of the Old Testament and, and even its personalities. But ultimately, what these men and women displayed wasn't something in and of themselves. What they displayed was one faith that shows itself in various facets throughout their life. And so each of these people who did all these different things, they really just had one faith. And so what Hebrews, what the writer of Hebrews is trying to show us isn't, isn't these, these people or these things that they did. What he's trying to show us is look what impact faith had in these individuals' lives. Look at the impact faith had in their lives. And so thereby we see all the things that faith does and the benefits that it conveys and so you start out in verse 3 of this passage. It says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are invisible. So faith, what does faith do? Faith sees the creator behind the creation. Faith sees the creator behind the creation. The nature of the universe, the creation, the beginning of all things, it can't be explained by evidence that's just clear to our eyes. So without faith, we can't even explain the world that we live in. And that's, that's true regardless of your religious belief. That's true, just as true for atheists as, as it is for Christians. That we cannot explain creation, no matter what, what theories we want to throw onto it, Big Bang Theory being the most popular as far as theories of creation, we still, we, we, can't, we can't prove that the Big Bang is what caused creation. And so whatever your thought, whatever your thought process, there is a degree of faith that you have to put into your idea for where, where creation came from. Where did this all come from? Only faith provides an answer to origin. Again, true for the Christian and for the atheist. We also see that faith justifies. Faith justifies. Hebrews 11.4 says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. So Cain and Abel, right? So we got to go back to our Old Testament history here. Cain and Abel, uh, if you remember the story, Cain and Abel were the children of Adam and Eve and uh, probably most famously known because this was the first murder that ever took place uh, in history and in Scripture. And so the, the story starts, they both offer their sacrifices to God. So Cain, Cain comes and he brings a sacrifice and his sacrifice is of the first fruit 
um, of essentially his, his garden, whatever crops he was growing. He brought the first fruits of that and brought it to God. Abel came and brought um, the firstborn of his flock. The firstborn of his flock. So what, what was wrong with Cain's offering? Because if you go back and look at the story, you see they both brought, brought offerings of, of the first of whatever it was. And God accepted Abel's offering, but he did not accept Cain's offering. So what was wrong with Cain's offering? I, I really think we have to go back even a little bit further to Genesis chapter 3 to try to answer that question. Genesis chapter 3 a well-known passage, this is the fall of man. The fall of man. If you, you, you remember the storyline, um, it's, it's an ugly scene, right? Adam and Eve just sinned and God shows up and they try to cover themselves because for the first time they experience shame and they start pointing fingers, right? So Adam's pointing at his wife Eve, Eve's pointing at the serpent. Uh, all of a sudden you got curses coming down, people are kicked out of the garden, but one more thing happens to you. And I think if you're not careful, you can read, just read past it and not really pay attention. But in Genesis chapter 3 verse 21, God covers Adam and Eve in garments made from animal skin. Now, Adam and Eve, Scripture tells us, they, they had actually already covered them, themselves. They, they had sewn fig leaves together and, and covered themselves. But God found it necessary to cover them with the skins of animals. And so what you, what you see is the, the, first, the first death that happened, the first time blood is shed, and you see God taking that, that animal and covering the shame of Adam and Eve with these animal skins. And so God was, in effect, he was showing mankind what kind of sacrifice needs to be made in order to draw near to him. So Brad talked last week about how this is a, this is a bloody book. Uh, there's, there's a lot of blood language, even in Hebrews. And, and this is essentially, even in Genesis chapter 3, foreshadowing foreshadowing Jesus' death, that blood had to be spilt in order for the shame and guilt to be covered. And so Abel came, and his, his offering included that. It included blood being spilt as a part of his offering, but Cain, Cain only brought the first fruit. And he did not bring any, any sacrifice. No blood was spilled. And so by faith, Abel's sacrifice was better than Cain's, not just because Abel's faith made it better, but because by faith, he offered the sacrifice that God had established as the means by which he would accept sinful mankind. So what this, what this means is you, you can't come to God any way you choose. That's what Cain tried to do. You don't just say you believe in God and then decide for yourself how you're going to draw near to Him. That's what Cain wanted to do. So there's two types of offerings we can bring to God. We can bring an offering that points to ourselves, that points to our own work, our own merits, our own righteousness. I'm sure Cain was really proud of the offering that he brought. It was the first fruits of the things that he had worked really hard for. And he could, he could show it to God and say, look what I've done for you. So there's that kind of offering. Then the other offering is, is really simple. It's just an offering that points to Jesus. It's just an offering that points to Jesus. And when blood is shed in offering in the Old Testament, that is all that it is doing. Because we, we learned a couple of weeks ago that the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sins. 
So the blood points to the fact that Jesus one day was coming and that the blood of Jesus could cover and take away our sins. Faith justifies. Faith also pleases God. Hebrews 11 verses 5 through 6 says, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. And now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, and that he rewards those who seek him. <clears throat> now, we don't know a whole lot about Enoch. Uh, he basically shows up in the section of Scripture that most of us usually skip. Uh, so you're reading through Genesis, you know, Genesis 1 through 4 is happening. And then you get Genesis 5, and it's like, so-and-so had so-and-so as a son, and they lived a ridiculous number of years, and they had so-and-so as a son, and they lived a ridiculous number of years. Um, and so, you know, we might read a couple of verses of that before we're like, all right, when does is, when is this genealogy end? We want to get back into the story. Uh, so Enoch shows up like in this passage, right? So that, that's where we're at, Genesis chapter 5, genealogy. Enoch shows up here. We really don't know much about him other than uh, it says that he walked with God. Two times in Genesis 5, verses 22 and 24, says that Enoch walked with God. And so that is why the writer of Hebrews is able to say that he pleased God. So if we try to, if we try to take this passage and put it in our words, um, God is pleased when two things about him are reflected in our relationship with him. One is that he is real, and the other is that he is rewarding. So there's two great facts there, two great facts about who God is. He is real and he is rewarding. God is real. He exists absolutely. He has always existed. He always will exist. He is not changing. He is not becoming something different. He is not becoming better. He is not becoming worse. He is who he says he is. He always has been and he always will be. And that's essentially why he names himself in Exodus chapter 3, I am who I am. That is his name. He absolutely is. And he is pleased when this absolute existence is known and embraced. He is pleased when he is reflected in our lives in that way as someone who absolutely is, always was, always will be. And behind the idea that God is rewarding, that he's so full of complete self-sufficiency that he overflows out of himself. So rather than needing our service, like God doesn't need your service. God doesn't need you to, to come to him. He doesn't need you to do anything. God does not need your service. He's like a, a never-ending spring of life. Like a never-ending spring of, of energy and joy and goodness and gladness and power. So it pleases God when we come to Him in a way that affirms that. When we come to Him in a way that, that we delight in Him. When we come to Him as a, as a rewarder. When we come and we don't seek rewards from Him so that we can better our life, but we seek rewards from Him simply because they are overflows out of the reality of who He is. So God exists absolutely and God rewards those who seek him. And oftentimes that, that reward, as, as we've talked about already, that reward is not always in the present. And many times that reward is seen in the future. 
And faith is what allows us to see that. So this is what faith does. Faith comes to God with confidence that he is. And faith comes with confidence that God will be a generous giver. That he will be a generous giver. And he's not, the the writer is not arguing that, that faith is this way. Because that's how he defines it in the Old Testament stories. He's just saying that given the absolute reality of God's being. And the reality of his fullness. This is what faith has to be. John Piper said it this way. I think we have this quote on the screen. John Piper said it this way. What pleases God is that our hearts and minds display God's being and God's beauty. That we display God's existence and his excellence. That we display how real he is and how rewarding he is. This is what pleases God and this is faith. That our lives reflect those things to be true about who God is. So that's what faith does. And so last question we're going to answer this morning is, is what does this mean for us? If these things about faith are true, how do we respond to these truths in our lives? What does faith mean for us? And we're going to skip down to, to verse 13 through 16 of this passage in Hebrews. Verse 13 through 16 says this, These all died in faith. Not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city." So there, there are many people who try to water down what saving faith is. And we do that by, by trying to make it sound like saving faith is just this one-time decision that we made probably a long time ago. And we don't even realize that we reinforce that idea in some of the language that we use. So we use, we use questions like, have you ever asked Jesus into your heart? We use questions like, have you ever prayed the sinner's prayer? Was there a point in your life when you trusted Jesus as Savior? Did you walk the aisle at a church service? Did you raise your hand at a youth camp? We try to, we try to take faith and just boil it down to, to just going back to this one point in life. When maybe you said a prayer or you raised your hand at a revival service or you walked an aisle. And we try to minimize faith and make it that simple. That at some point we, we, we did this thing and so now faith exists because of that moment in the past. But there's a, a stark warning for people who, who think that way in this passage. Because faith can't be, can't be that simple. It can't be that simple. Because what you see is, you see a group of people who are so, so gripped by God. When you look at this passage, you see people so gripped by God that nothing short of being with God would satisfy them. Nothing short of being with God would satisfy them. So this is true saving faith. And this is, a, this is an excellent definition. 
True saving faith, seeing the promises of God from afar and experiencing a change of values so that you desire and seek after and trust in the promises of God above what the world has to offer. Seeing the promises of God from afar and experiencing a change of values so that you desire and seek after and trust in the promises of God above what this world has to offer. True saving faith. It wasn't just some some decision that Moses made however many years before and then he can just go back to living his life however he wanted. But you know, he got his, his fire insurance if you want to call it that. It, it drastically changed how Moses lived his life. Things were different because suddenly he had seen the reality that what God offers is so much greater than anything this world can offer. And he desired it so much that it changed his, his values so that he, was, he, he could not just stay where he was. It was a part of him that, that even wanted to, but he couldn't. The call of God, God's word and call in his life was too great for him to just simply stay where he was. True saving faith changes our values so that we desire and seek after and trust in the promises of God above what the world has to offer. And the passage goes on to say that essentially for for that reason, for those reasons, that, that God is proud of the people that, he, uh, that he's not ashamed of those who desire his city more than they desire this world. Because their desire calls attention to the superior worth of God over what the world offers. And so that's one of the greatest proofs of Christianity is when you see someone who just, who just turns away from everything that this world offers and embraces the call embraces God's word and being obedient to God and pursuing a relationship with God because to the world, that doesn't make any sense. And if, you just, if you just call yourself a Christian, the people can, can look at your life. If they were just a fly on the wall of your house for a week, and there's no difference there. there there's, there's, there's nothing about your life that, that shows that faith is real and active in your daily walk. I think this, this passage should have you should have you praying. It should ask you asking yourself some difficult questions because this passage says that faith is not just this one-time event that occurred. Faith is something that changes our values. Changes how we live our life. Changes sometimes what time you get up in the morning. It changes how you spend your money. It changes your relationships. It changes your, your purpose and your, and your drive. Faith changes things. And not because we accomplish something through faith, but because God has accomplished so much. And through faith, we desire to be a part of it. <clears throat> I have a, this is a, a, it's a lengthy quote, and I, I didn't get it on the screen, so I apologize, but it's, it's good, and so I want us to hear it. This is Jonathan Edwards, and so I'm going to ask you just to follow along. Listen, God is the highest good of the reasonable creature. And the enjoyment of him is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here on earth. 
Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows. But the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. And these are but drops, but God is the ocean. Therefore, it, become, it becomes us to spend this life only as a journey toward heaven, as it, be, as it becomes us to make the seeking of our highest end and proper good, the whole work of our lives, to which we should subordinate all other concerns of life. Why should we labor for or set our hearts on anything else but that which is our proper end and true happiness? Christianity is not a religion focused on this earth or this reality or this present life. That's why Paul is able to write in Colossians, set your minds on things that are above, not on things of this earth. Or why... Jesus said in Matthew 6, Do not set up for yourselves treasures on earth, but treasures in heaven. And so this, this really directly confronts a view that is, that is really prevalent in our society. And it's this packaged version of Christianity that tries to deliver something that's not true. It tries to turn Christianity into something, instead of promising future, it promises the present. And so there's this package of Christianity out there that says, if you follow God, if you do what He says, if you trust Jesus, then your life is just going to be better. You're going to make more money. You're going to drive a nicer car, have a nicer house. Your relationships will be better. You'll have less stress. How easily we forget. How easily we forget that the Christian life was marked by suffering. It's marked by being persecuted in this world and our, our blessings are spiritual rather than physical. And therefore that the Christian has a vastly different view of death than does the non-Christian. That's why Paul is able to say, for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live as Christ and to die as gain. Because death for Paul became the primary means by which his greatest heart's desire could be achieved. That he could stand face to face with Jesus. That he could be with God. So this passage describes the life of faith as a, as a pilgrimage. A journey through a foreign land for a life that awaits beyond the grave. Verse 13 acknowledges that we are strangers and exiles. Strangers and exiles. Clear that we are seeking a homeland. And so practically the, the worst thing that can be said for someone who has once professed faith in Christ is that he went back to the home that he had left. So what you essentially have is someone saying, at one point I, I claimed to trust Christ, but when I ex what I experienced is not better than what I left. And so I turned around and I came back to the home from which I came. This whole season as we've been walking through the book of Hebrews, we've, we've focused on, on these three words, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. And what we see in this passage today, that Jesus is better. That he's better than, than anything we could turn away from. Anything you could say no to in this world, Jesus is better. 
Anything you, you turn away from, any, any job you turn down, any lifestyle that, that is at your fingertips, Jesus is better than that. And do you live your life in a way that reflects it? If someone examined your life, would they be able to say, in your life, I can see Jesus is better. So this idea of looking forward, of always looking forward, it's even referenced in the previous chapter. Brad read this last week. In chapter 10, verse 34, you see, uh, you see this verse. It says, For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since, that, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So you, you see this picture uh, of, of people in, uh, essentially being okay with the fact that their property is plundered because they, don't, they, don't, they no longer care about it. It's no longer their, their value. They value what's in the future. And, uh, you know, for, for some of us, it, you know, who have chosen um, to live even in Midtown, I know that there are several of us who, who, who sold a house somewhere else and, and, and followed God's call to, to move to a particular place that, you know, maybe people around you or maybe the world was saying, you know, it's the safest place to be. Um, you sure you want to do that? I mean, since we moved into Midtown in 2011, and I don't mean to be a discouragement to anyone, since then our, our house has been broken into, uh, and uh, we've had a car stolen. So it's just, just the reality of, of trying to do ministry in an urban context and in, inside the city. Um, but we're, we're grateful that, that we can be obedient to God's call because we don't, we don't care about our car. We had insurance. They paid for it. We don't care about the car. We care about our stuff. As, as famously as, as somebody once said, you can't take it with you. We don't care about our stuff. You can come and plunder our house and take our car. We're going to be obedient to just be where God calls us to be. And the world doesn't understand that. I, um, I was at work. This was a couple of years ago. and My, my boss at work knew that I lived in Midtown. And we had had a couple of conversations. And he's, he claims to, to be a, a follower of Christ and... He, um, I had just started a new job at work, and, and it was, a, it was a, a significant raise for me at the time. And he, uh, he came and said, he said, I don't remember exactly what he said. He said something like, Jared, since you, since you started this new job and since you, you ha you're having kids now, um, when are you guys going to move out of Midtown? There's like this expectation that if, if you're able to get away, like, why wouldn't you? And I, I just looked at him and I, I said, I... We're not, we're not going anywhere. I'm not leaving Midtown. I said, God called us to Midtown, and we're going to be in Midtown until he calls us somewhere else. And that's, that's, that's the only answer I have. People don't understand that. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where is your treasure? Is the, the faith that you claim to have in your heart and in your life, is it a faith that allows your treasure to be, to be somewhere that's not of this world? We're going to finish with this. Um, I, um, I read through the Chronicles of Narnia. That's a, it's a children's story written by C.S. Lewis. Um, I didn't read it when I was a kid. I read it when I was in college. Um, so that the older I get, I, I think the more I realize that you're never, you're never too old for children's books. 
Um, so it's it's my favorite like books. If we go to like Barnes and Noble, like just part of me is like let's check out the kids. It's like me and me and my wife. We're like, let's go to the kids book section. We you know we're not even shopping for the kids. We just like <laughs> we just like kids books. Um, and there's there's something about uh, something about about children's stories and something about just about fantasy and fiction that that I think God can really use, uh, particularly through just incredible creative minds as the, the the father of creativity has endowed people with just incredible ways to communicate just small truths of who God is and um, C.S. Lewis wrote, wrote these books, The Chronicles of Narnia, and, and, and he even realized it. He realized that same truth that, you know, at some point, as you grow up, you grow out of children's books, and then at some point you grow back into children's books. Uh, if, you have, if you ever read, I just thought this was interesting, if you read the, uh, the dedication page on The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, he dedicates the book to his goddaughter, a girl named Lucy Barfield. And he, he simply writes this. He says, My dear Lucy, I wrote this story for you. But when I began it, I had not realized that girls grow quicker than books. And as a result, you are already too old for fairy tales. And by the time it is printed and bound, you will be older still. But someday, you will be old enough to start reading fairy tales again. You can then take it down from some upper shelf, dust it, and tell me what you think of it. I shall probably be too deaf to hear and too old to understand a word you say, but I shall still be your affectionate godfather, C.S. Lewis. Uh, this morning, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you guys just to, to do something with me. So I, I just really enjoy stories, and I feel like God speaks to me through stories sometimes, and, and so sometimes I go back to... These are stories that I've read and just times that God has, has just revealed truths of Scripture and truth of His Word through stories. And so uh, I, I want to read a quick excerpt from, um, from a book. And this is a book called The Last Battle. And this is uh, the last of the Chronicles of Narnia books. And what you see here is essentially C.S. Lewis's description of heaven. And so there's a, at the end of this book, there's, there's now a new Narnia that they find themselves in. And they've left the old Narnia. They're in this new Narnia. And this is, this is the description, the new Narnia essentially being a picture of heaven. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you guys to, to do something with me. I hope it's not too weird. I'm just going to ask you to close your eyes while I read it. And so I know a lot of us are uh, probably not auditory learners. And so I want you to, since I don't have pictures of this, close your eyes and you can just try to picture it as I read it. And it reads, It is as hard to explain how this sunlit land was different from the old Narnia as it would be to tell you how the fruits of that country taste. Perhaps you will get some idea of it if you think like this. You may have been in a room in which there was a window that looked out on a lovely bay of the sea or of a green valley that wound away among the mountains. And in the wall of that room, opposite to the window, there may have been a looking glass. And as you turned away from the window, you suddenly caught sight of that sea or that valley all over again in the looking glass. And the sea and the mirror or the valley in the mirror were in one sense just the same as the real ones, yet at the same time, they were somehow different deeper, more wonderful, more like places in a story, in a story you have never heard but very much want to know. The difference between the old Narnia and the new Narnia was like that. The new one was a deeper country. Every rock and flower and blade of grass looked as if it meant more. I can't describe it any better than that. If ever you get there, you will know what I mean. 
It was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He stamped his right forehoof on the ground and neighed. And then he cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we loved the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. Come further up. Come further in. You can open your eyes. I hope that that passage, at least in some small way, helps us to, to contrast this idea of heaven with the picture that we saw at the beginning. The picture of a man just sitting on a cloud saying, I wish I brought a magazine because I'm, I'm bored for eternity. True saving faith. Seeing the promises of God from a distance and experiencing a change of values that we desire and seek after and trust in the promises of God above what the world has to offer. I'm going to ask the band to, uh, to come back up and um, they're going to share in communion and then we're going to share in communion together. <clears throat> but faith, faith transforms our today by changing our tomorrow. It transforms our today by changing our tomorrow. So this, this morning, the, the challenge that I want to issue to you guys is as we look at this passage and we answer those questions, what is faith, what does it do, and what does it mean for me? I want us to, to spend some time this morning, before we partake in communion, spend some time just simply reflecting. And reflecting on your life, reflecting and asking the question, what, what does faith mean to me? How have my values been turned upside down because of the fact that, that faith exists in my life? Faith changes our tomorrow. It changes our tomorrow. It impacts our today. Pray with me. Father, we are grateful for this morning. God, we're grateful that faith is a gift. God, that we can't muster faith up in our hearts. God, we can't make it happen. But God, it is a gift of God given by your grace. And so this morning, God, we, we just want to explore that gift. God, that you would reveal to us what true saving faith looks like. That God, we would desire your country, God, more than we desire ours. God, more than we desire to, to turn back and go back to the things of this world. That God, we would continue to taste and see that you are good. And God, not just that you are good, but that Jesus is better better than everything this world has to offer. God, may that truth become a reality for us. God, by faith, God, may we desire a better country. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.